Well, back in the Navy, as it were, I uh, had the privilege of being assigned. The first ship I was assigned to was a ship in the shipyard. It got there the same month that I did, and uh, it was quite a challenge. When ships come out of the shipyard or any kind of refit period, they, uh, they get underway and they do a number of things. One of the things they do when they're uh, certified to dive is they do what is affectionately known as angles and dangles. If you can imagine what that's like on a submarine, it really is sort of the, the source of the only nightmare that ever recurred to me on the submarine, and that is getting myself into an endless dive on a ship that just forever went to the bottom of the ocean. Of course, that never happened, and I'm very thankful that it didn't. But nonetheless, it, uh, it's a good illustration for the passage of Scripture today, where the Apostle Peter encourages us to set our hope and ultimately to hold fast. One of the important aspects of taking all those angles on a submarine is to make sure that the crew still remembers how to rig for sea. They understand that all the china needs to be put in its proper place because the first few times that a a captain would do that, you would hear all kinds of things breaking particularly in the kitchen, and there would be things that would be falling, and people would be falling down when you take an angle of about 15, 25 degrees or so. So you can imagine uh, that people learn pretty quickly that they need to hold on to things that won't move. And that's one of the ideas that uh, the Apostle Peter directs our attention to. Last week we looked at the gift of Christ the gift of the gospel, the gift of our salvation. The Apostle Peter has a very similar kind of paradigm uh, of writing that you see uh, with the Apostle Paul, this idea that he places doctrine initially, and then he says, because of this, so therefore live in this way. Because of this. And now, we understand uh, that the Apostle Peter was writing to a people who were confused and discouraged. Their world had been shaken up quite a bit. One of the things that I really enjoy, particularly during this time of year, is hearing Handel's Messiah, the music. And if you are familiar at all with Handel's Messiah, you recognize that that every word in that is Scripture. Every single word. Is scripture. And one of the prominent aspects of the Messiah is this idea that the Lord is going to shake the heavens and the earth. He's going to shake the heavens and the earth. For instance, we look in Haggai chapter 2, verse 6, and the Bible says, For thus says the Lord of hosts, Yet once more in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth, and the sea and the dry land. Now, the shaking in this passage in Haggai is a direct is a direct reference to the incarnation of Christ. This idea that there will be one additional time recorded in Scripture in which it is as if the whole world were turned upside down. The apostles, the advent of the Lord Jesus is referred to scripturally as this idea that the world was turned upside down. And when you could do angles and dangles on a submarine, your world turns upside down. And so we see here that Peter was talking to a people who were discouraged and confused. They had had been redeemed. They had enjoyed the hope of Christ. They'd been renewed in Christ. But yet all was not well 
in their circumstances. As a matter of fact, we recalled last week that they are referred to as exiles. Why? Because they were literally refugees. They were, they were removed from their homes because of their faith in Christ. Completely new surroundings, new situations, new living conditions, new demands and challenges, a new place to go to the market, new, new neighbors, new housing conditions. All of these things were theirs because of their displacement. And we understand today, for instance, that, that many have been displaced because of warfare, displaced uh, and placed in our own community, given an opportunity that they would never have in places like Syria or Afghanistan to hear the gospel. And now they live 20 miles away from us. And here's a great question for us. Here's a great command for us as we enter into the great commissions that the Lord Jesus gave us. Will we then tell them the gospel? This is nothing less than this, uh, this idea of the commonality and the commonplace and the crossroads literally of the world in Jerusalem has now been brought to us, if you will, through all the displacements from the warfare in our world. But nonetheless, we see here that there's going to be a shaking. In Hebrews chapter 12, verses 27 to 29, the Bible says, This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That is, things that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. Again, this idea that Peter is calling us to is to lay hold to that which is immovable. We're in a world that seems to be in constant turmoil. We we have had an opportunity, if you will, to get a taste of the shaking uh, that occurred with the incarnation of Christ in the world. You know, we, uh, we considered the prophecies of Christ. We considered redemption of mankind through the gospel. And we recognize that the birth of Christ didn't occur in a pristine community. It didn't occur in a place where there was only peace and no warfare. It didn't occur in a community where there was no difficulties or challenges or, or thievery or warfare. It didn't occur in a perfect place. And we don't live in a perfect place. If anything is true of those in our culture today, we've recognized that much has been shaken over this past year. We currently have a president that is more politically progressive than Lyndon B. Johnson, who set the standard in contemporary culture for progressive politics. True upheaval, immoral, thoroughgoing in its departure from God. COVID revealed breathtaking financial collusion between the Centers for Disease Control and big pharmaceutical companies, blinding the people's ability to see the truth about what should be done. Wokeness, Black Lives Matter, social justice, defunding the police, riots, intensification of authoritarian government, rejection of parental involvement in public education, bureaucratic despotism, just to name a few. Upheaval. You want to see shaking? Pay attention to what's around you. It's absolutely breathtaking to see what it is that's that's falling and how God calls us to lay hold to that which is immovable. You see, the Bible encourages us to recognize that this is not new. It is this is the context for our redemption. 
This is the context. You see, the salvation that God has given us is far more powerful and able. It was was created, if you will, for times like these. It's like having a brand new four-wheel drive truck, and you're like, can I break it? And you're like, no, I can't. It was made for this. (laughs) It was made for this. You see, God's redemption was made for this. And that's what the Apostle Peter is calling us to here. So here we are in the first letter of Peter here, chapter 1, verse 13. As I said, first of all, 12 verses of doctrine, if you will, talking about the Lord Jesus Christ, talking about the gospel, talking about walking in faith, talking about this thing of salvation, begun with the foreknowledge of God and brought about with certainty and confirmation with the advent of the Lord Jesus Christ, with his death, burial, and ultimately his resurrection. So he says in verse 13, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, this idea this idea of preparing your minds for action, the old English, this idea of girding up your loins. This was... This was a reference to the clothing that was, of course, worn in the first century. Clothing that didn't lend itself to active work. And so, that didn't mean they didn't do active work. It just meant that they had to cinch up their clothing before they entered into the demands of some of the labor that they did. So Peter is saying, because you've been called, redeemed from enslavement and sin and the degradation of the world, you have a journey to tend to. You have a race to run. You have warfare to accomplish. You have a great work to do. Peter is talking to us. He's talking to the first century believers. And he says, look here, traveler. Look here, racer. Look here, warrior. Look here, laborer. Gird up your loose garments. Prepare your minds for action. That they may be more ready, prompt, expeditious in their business. Children, you know that superheroes, often, they have a suit, right? They have a suit. And you see, God can use this idea as we think about dressing for action. In Jeremiah chapter 1, God says to Jeremiah, But you dress yourself for work. Arise and say to them everything that I command you. Do not be dismayed by them, lest I dismay you before them. God is telling Jeremiah to suit up. Suit up. Prepare yourself for action. That's that's the idea that we get here in Jeremiah. The Lord Jesus says in Luke chapter 12, Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning. This This is the kind of people that God has called us to be. We're always ready. We're like the Minutemen of old. We're prepared. We're ready to go. The Lord Jesus is calling us to that. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 14, this very same idea. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. Children, this very idea of suiting up, this idea that God has given to us, 
the accoutrements of, of warfare, the things that we must have to enter into. He's calling us to that, and that's what Peter is talking about here. Prepare your minds for action. Be ready. That's what he's saying. Gird up your minds. Consider your minds. Disengage from things that would hinder your great task. Go resolutely to your obedience. Where is it that you're going? Do you know where you're going? Do you recognize that God has called us to a place, to a spiritual place, to a position of faithfulness? Well, we as a people go there. He calls us to be sober. Sober-minded. This idea of vigilance against spiritual dangers and enemies. Peter is getting at the, the main work of a believer. This idea that it's this management of heart and mind. This idea of our affections. What is it that we like? Are we training ourselves to desire those things that God would have us to do? How do we do that? Well, part of it, of course, is being exhorted. Some of us may be under the impression that if I have to be told or encouraged, then something's wrong. But friends, the Bible is written for us. You see, the reality is is that this faith that God has given us is so fashioned in such a way as it requires encouragement and exhortation. Peter says, gird up your loins. That isn't necessarily an implication of wrongdoing. It's this idea that, that, that we're necessary, as the Apostle Paul told the Philippians in chapter 1, my continuation to live on this earth is necessary that you might live. And so the exhortations in the Scriptures are as well. Now you might ask yourself the question, and you should, how do we do this? How do I prepare my mind for action? How do we get ready? You see, again, we're a people uh, that often can be described as those people that are typically in leisure and we take short moments to think. We take short moments to activate our minds, to enter into the challenge of the day, to really engage. You see, the Scripture would, would flip that around. This idea of being ready, of preparing our minds, of always recognizing, yes, how will I prepare myself? And it, of course, is the Word of God. It's reading the Word of God. I encourage you as we anticipate a new year. Some people say, oh, I never make resolutions because I always break them. Or it's, it's too burdensome to make promises like that. I encourage you to make resolutions. I encourage you to tell other people about your resolutions. I encourage you to ask other people in your life to help hold you accountable to your resolutions. What will they be? Well, they certainly should be to read the Scriptures. But to do more than to read the Scriptures, to meditate on them, to memorize them. Also, there's the catechism, of course, that's very, very helpful for us to think about life theologically. What does that that mean? We could look at today's catechism. That was selected based on this sermon. Question 23, what offices does Christ execute as our Redeemer? Who is He for us as we enter into this task? Christ our Redeemer executed the offices of a prophet and of a priest and of a king, both in His estate of humiliation and His estate of exaltation. 
That means, as Preston mentioned at the Christmas Eve service, that even when the Lord Jesus was physically a little baby, He was Lord, He was prophet, He was priest, He was king. Consider your minds. This very, this very first idea that we see here, preparing your minds for action. All things are shaken. We must lay hold of immovable things. This first section that Peter's talking about here. Now, you might ask the question, why? Why, why, would, I, why would I do that? Why would I prepare my mind for action? What, what is the, for what purpose do I do that? Well, as we understand, again, we, we, live, we live in a world that's standing in opposition to the things of God. We also have our own sinful, unredeemed flesh. We know that with our justification that enters into sanctification, we recognize that we, we even have aspects of our own fleshly bodies that work against the goodness of God. They'll not overcome, but they do make life difficult sometimes. And then we have the adversary of our soul, Satan, who desires to destroy our lives, our families. Do you know spiritual turmoil? Challenge in your home? Difficulties at work? It's not only you. We have an adversary of our flesh and of our souls. Satan desires to destroy everything that God creates. And he's not omnipotent, he's not omnipresent, but he's got 6,000 years of experience. And he's good at being bad. And he will mess you up. You want to wonder, why is it that we're called to live with such sobriety and urgency? Peter says, hey, this is war. And we have a place to go. And we have the captain of our souls that says, charge. And with great confidence, we can go forward. And Peter's calling us to that. Why prepare our minds for action? Because God has called us to service. As I mentioned, uh, the very people around us that need to hear the gospel, where do they hear it? Why not from you? Why Why not from me? The Bible says if, if they don't hear, they can't be redeemed. The planting of churches, the raising up of God followers in our home, God calls us to that. There's no easy task. Anybody that spent three hours as a parent recognizes it's no easy task to raise up a God follower. It's no easy task. We must lean into ministry. The Apostle Peter, those that followed... They recognized that they didn't enter into foolish overextension, but they also understood that they must plottingly trust in the promises and commands of God. You say, well, we'll enter into a ministry endeavor when we can do it comfortably. You want to wait till then? If you wait till then, then the ship has left the station. You see, God calls us into this business, into the business of our Father. That involves some risk and danger. But it also involves great confidence in our God and courage and faithfulness, recognition of the counsel that God brings to each of us through His people and through His Word. So we begin here with this idea that that though we may be discouraged and dismayed, 
we're called to sobriety and urgency. We're called to lay hold of that which is immovable. You think, well, I don't need this. I don't, I don't, need, I don't need the stability in my life. I'm okay. Oh, okay. You know that's not true. We must have Christ. We must have the Gospel. We must continue to lay hold of that which is immovable. Secondly, we have this idea in the same verse, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you with the revelation of Jesus Christ. Set without wavering to the end. To the end. Hebrews 6.19 We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. If you recall Christian and Pilgrim's progress after Faithful had already been killed at Vanity Fair, here comes Hopeful, his next companion. Here they are at Doubting Castle with Giant Despair. Giant Despair encourages them to suicide. He gives them the instruments to kill themselves. They're in absolute despair. They fear that all is lost. And Christian says, What am I doing? I have a key of promise around my neck. I can. I have a key to the locks of this castle. And though it seems like the key might break, Christian understood that they would hold fast. That that would be what God would use His promises. And so Peter calls us to that same idea. Set your hope. It's like setting a compass. This place where we're going to go. That's where we're going. We recognize there's set and drift. There are currents in our own culture that would move us away, but yet the place where we're going, it's not moving. It's stationary. And that's where we're going. That's where we're going with Christ. Thirdly, we see here, as we move on into the next verse here, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. And ultimately, he says, be holy. Verse 16, you shall be holy for I am holy. So the idea here is that we were holy and that we love from a pure heart. God calls us to holiness and we love from a pure heart. Peter says, as obedient children, be not conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Where you were before. We recognize here that in many ways our own sinfulness involves ignorance. It involves not knowing some things that we should know. But of course, it also involves being transformed, being converted. The Bible says in Ephesians 2.2, In which you once walked following the course of this world, the Apostle Paul is describing our old selves. There's a dramatic change that Peter is addressing here. This change from the past of being conformed or bent to the shape of this world. Romans 6.4, the Bible says, We were buried, therefore with Him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Peter's talking about this change that has occurred with Christ with this new life that Christ gives us. He said, this is where you were. This is where you were. But now, now you're a new person. Now you've been given new life. 
Now you no longer have to be conformed to the world. Romans 12.2 Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Again, Romans 6.4 We were buried, therefore with Him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Now, I don't want you to miss this in verse 14 and the rest of, well, the next few verses. Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Now, what's being contrasted here is conformity and transformation. Conformity and the transformation of conversion. Now, what the Apostle Peter is talking about is this. Look, outwardly, and we recognize that as the fruit of, of our in, inward natural selves, we conform, we begin to look like the world. Matter of fact, we are the world. We, our own sins, obviously, and our unredeemed flesh and our unredeemed souls before God saves us, we do make up the sinful world. It's not that we're like them, we are them, right? And we continue to conform ourselves to the sinfulness of the world. But the Apostle Peter here, not only does he speak openly of this confirmation of the world, but the implication is, is that this is contrasted not with conformity outwardly to the things of God. So in other words, it's a different paradigm. It's a different way of thinking. This is a transformation brought about by a changed life. And so what happens is, is that we're no longer conforming to the world, but we're being transformed such that we're living in accordance with God's standard. And we're able to do that because it's, it's the fruit of our redemption. Outwardly conforming to holiness is not the same as expressing fruit from the inner transformation of conversion. The Bible says in verses 15 and 16, You shall be holy as I am holy. You shall be holy as I am holy. Verse 17 says, If you call on Him as Father who judges impartially, according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear, throughout the time of your exile. Now, he goes on and talks about this very important aspect of being ransomed or redeemed. But I don't want to skip over this idea that Peter talks about. He says, don't forget, verse 17, that if you call on Him as Father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Now, this is something that many in our day are uncomfortable with. This idea, and who is Peter talking to, by the way? He's talking to people who are redeemed. People who have entered into union with Christ. People who have a relationship with this personal 
God. You see, Peter is talking about this idea that our relationship with our Heavenly Father includes a paradigm in which our relationship is genuinely impacted, though not savingly, by how our conduct aligns with His standards of holiness. Now we're actually going to talk about the law of God today in chapter 19 of the London Baptist Confession, which aligns precisely with this idea that Peter's getting at here. You see, what Peter is saying is this. Your new relationship, what you have been called to in Christ, your union with Christ, which attaches you, of course, to the Trinity, Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, has with it a paradigm in which you are thought of Not only, but in some aspects, with how you obey God. How you obey God. Do you struggle with your relationship with the Father? Do you feel uncomfortable? Does it sort of take you back? And I recognize that this may be kind of dangerous ground because all of us didn't have faithful parents that uh, encouraged us and held us accountable. But nonetheless... Does your disobedience to God bring back memories of your disobedience to your parents? Was there a discomfort there? You know it's good that we're not comfortable disobeying God? And that's what Peter's talking about here. You see, the reality is is that when we obey our earthly parents, our relationship should be positively impacted by that. Because we know for sure, children... That when we disobey our parents, our relationship with them is negatively impacted. Right? It isn't that they don't love us anymore. It isn't that we're not their children anymore. It isn't any of that. It's just that that there's something between us that's impacted the joyful relationship that we've had. That's true of our relationship with God. He is a Father who judges Now, if there's anything true about our culture, it's this idea that we shouldn't judge, right? Well, see, the reality is is that God's Word is true. His standard is there for us. It's, It's imprinted in our very minds and hearts. Holiness is a good thing. And it is a standard that isn't lost on those that are redeemed. Our conduct is judged. We can grow in our relationship with God. The Bible says that God is a personal God. What does that mean? Well, among the things that it means is that we relate to God as we do a person. Let me give you an example. Let's think about, let's think about the Apostle John. We can think about the twelve apostles with the Lord Jesus Christ, right? And there were three, if you will, that were kind of an inner circle... But there was only one that was described like John. Whenever the Bible refers to John, it doesn't always use the name John. What does it use? The apostle whom Jesus loved. The apostle whom Jesus loved. Does that seem odd to you? Did did you somehow expect that uh, 
that there was no possibility for the humanity of Christ to actually be closer to one individual than another? Have you ever proposed to yourself that you should love everyone exactly the same? Wives, you wouldn't think much of your husband if that was true. I love my neighbor's children, but not like I love my own. I don't spank my neighbor's children. I don't feed my neighbor's children, not normally. See, those are expressions of love. And it's true of our relationship to God. You see, we have entered into, with our redemption, a relationship with a loving, forethoughtful God who also holds us accountable to house rules. You get a new pet? If the pet's never house trained, things might not go well. If we don't pick up on the rules of our Father, and we can only because of our redemption, our new life in Christ, then we will enjoy a great relationship with Him. Be holy as I am holy. The antinomian view that God sees no sin in the elect means that God could not possibly love His people more or less based on their obedience or disobedience. That view has never enjoyed orthodoxy. However, that view is very prevalent today. This idea, this idea, that God could not possibly love His people more or less based on their obedience or disobedience. This idea that it doesn't matter what you do. Well, friends, your relationship with no one works like that. If you continue to offend your parent, your brother, your sister, your friend, your relationship will dramatically and negatively change. It's not because you're sinful necessarily, in that your relationship is impacted. It's just that sin impacts relationships. And faithfulness and holiness also impacts relationships in a very positive way. Now, the old Reformed theologians of old didn't always express the components of God's love in exactly the same way, but nonetheless, they tended to describe it in three ways. First of all, God's love of benevolence. This idea regarding election and predestination. God set His love on those who would be redeemed. That's referred to as God's love of benevolence. And also God's love of beneficence, this idea regarding His will to redeem His people. Not only has He thought of it and set in motion the things that will make it happen, but He will call to course those things and He will make it happen. He will redeem His people. But thirdly, God's love of delight or friendship regarding rewarding His people according to their holiness. Friends, this third aspect of our love to God and His love to us is dynamic. You want to enjoy deeper fellowship with God? Enter into deeper levels of holiness with God. That's what Peter's talking about. You see, he places this concept of holiness, be holy for I am holy, alongside this idea that we're entering into a relationship with a God who judges us for conformity to His standard of righteousness. 
And He has made it such that we cannot sin as the redeemed with absolute impunity. We feel it. We know when we've sinned against the Father. And so He calls us very simply to repent, to turn away from our sin and to Him. Not only in the initial act of faith in Christ, but also as we move on with the Lord, day after day after day. Does your sin surprise you? It shouldn't. We're growing in grace. God calls us to repent and to look to Him. Be holy as I am holy. That's what Peter says here. Conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Fear? Why? Well, this element of our relationship with God in which our levels of faithfulness actually matter and impact the joy and depth is an idea that's perfectly natural, again, to our human relationships. Verses 18 and 19 indicate that we were ransomed from the feudal rays inherited from our forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver and gold, but with imperishable Here's one of the things that Peter's getting at here. You have likely enjoyed some aspect of a gift over the last few days. And if you're like me, a number of those gifts are edible. They don't last. That's okay. It's the nature of food, you know. But there are other things that are not edible, but they also won't last. And one of the reasons that they won't last is this this paradigm uh, uh, of the universe that God has built, and that is this, when you purchase things with other things that are not imperishable, those things also are imperishable. You see, everything that we can purchase with money that is perishable or barter for it, it is also perishable. It's going to change. But God says, listen here. Listen here. Your salvation was purchased with something that is imperishable with the redeeming blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And here's the deal. He always gets what he pays for. Jesus Christ gets what he pays for. You want to see intensity? You want to see urgency? Place some people in a situation where they're not getting what they paid for. It's not a happy day. The Lord Jesus Christ always gets what He pays for, and He has purchased not only your justification, but your sanctification. We're growing in grace, right? We're growing in grace. And the Apostle Peter goes on to say this as he talks about these things that are immovable and imperishable. He says in verse 23, You've been born again, not of imperishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding Word of God. And it's as if he says this as he takes this reference here 
from Isaiah chapter 40. Let me tell you about imperishable and perishable. All flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. It fades. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. You want to talk about imperishable? There's one. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. Peter's saying this. This is the gospel. This talk of the paradigm of a loving father entering into faithfully and joyfully obeying him. This idea that no longer are we conformed, but transformed by our conversion. The the Apostle Peter is saying this. He says, this is the gospel. This is the good news. This is a reference to the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a reference to your salvation. That's what Peter is talking about.